welcome and thank you for tuning into this week's season five finale of Maryland's most notorious murders where the most gruesome, the most horrific, the most high profile deadly homicide cases in Maryland, they are profiled, they are examined, and they are discussed. Now for this season, season five, the entire focus has been on sick, twisted, sadistic, pedophile, or sex-related type of homicides. Like all of these type of homicides that incur that occurred in Maryland, these type of homicides that has been the focus for season five. And as I stated in the last episode, this literally is just part one because this small state of Maryland has so many of these type of homicides that I only selected 10 of them, but I could have picked more. I could have kept on going. So there will be a part two eventually, like later on during the duration of this podcast. So with that being said, let's get right on into it. And on this episode, the sadistic cannibal serial killer, Joseph Roy Joe Matheny, will be profiled and as in each episode an unsolved homicide that needs special attention they will also also be profiled and this episode's unsolved homicide is the shooting death of 31 year old Deontay Eugene Julius. Whew, now Joseph Roy Joe Matheny was nicknamed Tiny who the hell knows why he was nicknamed Tiny because dude was literally nowhere near a tiny dude. At six foot one, over 450 pounds, Joe was a huge mass of fat, muscle, whatever you want to call it. And like most serial killers, it wasn't like Joe had some cookie cutter childhood or no leave it to beaver up type of upbringing. And for those who don't know, who you know, who. Remember, leave it a beaver. I'm telling my age. <laughs> Look it up. Anyway, <laughs> according to articles for the Baltimore Sun and articles all over the internet, there's hundreds of articles about Joe Matheny. Um, Joe was neglected as a kid, and he bounced around from one family member to the next. Um, according to these articles, his father was an alcoholic who died in a car accident when Joe was six years old. Joel was one of six kids, and his mother struggled financially to provide for all of them, like any most single mothers would. Joel's mother, she did manage to keep a job, and she worked double shifts on her feet as a waitress, and as a barmaid, and as a food truck driver, just to put food on the table for six kids. To me, I mean, she had six kids. I mean, she was a single mother. I'd have been struggling too. Because Joe's mother worked outside of the home, Joe was bounced from one babysitter to the next, but that doesn't necessarily make a serial killer. In an article for the Baltimore Sun, Joe's mother actually said that she gave her kids a normal life. And yeah, she said they were poor and they struggled, but her kids never went to bed hungry. And it wasn't like they was like in foster homes or nothing like that. It wasn't like they were in group homes. At least they were with family while she went to work. She also said that as a child, Joe was an above average student 
who was polite and her kids had a normal life and a normal upbringing. She said she did the best she could do with what she had to work with. In 1973, when Joel turned 19, he joined the United States Army and served in Germany. Joel later told reporters in the press that while he served in Germany, while he was in an artillery unit, he tried heroin for the first time. He loved it and got addicted to it. After he developed a heroin addiction, Joel drifted further and further away from his family like most addicts do. Joel stepped his high up and started doing crack cocaine and rapidly dissolved into a deeper world of depression, homelessness, and chronic drug addiction. Although Joel did hold a steady job as a $7 an hour forklift driver at the Joel Steen and Sons Pallet Factory in South Baltimore, and all of his co-workers said that he was an intelligent, well-spoken, well-mannered, and respectable person, Joel constantly struggled with depression and drug addiction and alcoholism, and he spent most of his time in bars getting drunk, on makeshift tents just getting high with other homeless people spending all of his money and time on drugs and alcohol just wasting away the killing starting started in 1994 according to jones own his own words he managed to get himself a girlfriend and she gave birth to their son they tried their best to make a suitable home for their son even though they both were living as drug addicts in south baltimore Joe said that he worked as a truck driver at the time and he wasn't home that much, but one day he came home from work and found out that his girlfriend had left with their six-year-old son. Since they both were addicted to drugs, Joe thought that his girlfriend had just moved on with another drug addict and decided to live on the streets with that dude. Joe couldn't have that and it infuriated him to the max and he spent days looking for them everywhere. Searching in homeless shelters, he searched in halfway houses, he searched in places where they would hang out and do their drugs, where they used to get high. One of those places was under the Hanover Street Bridge in South Baltimore, and Joel looked for his ex-girlfriend there. One, on one particular day when he got there, he came across two homeless men, 33-year-old Randall Brewer and 33-year-old Randall Piker. Joe asked the two dudes if they knew where his ex-girlfriend was and if they had even seen her. When both men couldn't or wouldn't give up any information on Joe's ex-girlfriend or they couldn't tell Joe what he wanted to hear or maybe because Joe didn't believe them or because they just wouldn't talk, Joe killed them both with an axe that he had hidden. Right after he axed them both to death, Joe looked up and saw a man who was fishing in the river looking over at him. Joe thought that the fisherman had seen what he did, so he ran over to him and axed him to death too. He tossed the fisherman's body in the river after weighing his body down with rocks. And he tossed the two homeless men's bodies on a mattress that was laying around. Their bodies were later found on August 2, 1995. Joe ended up getting locked up and going to jail for these two murders, and he stayed locked up awaiting trial for a year and a half 
but when the detectives and investigators couldn't find any evidence to link Joe directly to their murder, Joe was released back into society. Joe still didn't forget about his original mission, but he had found out that what he had suspected about his ex-girlfriend was true and that she had moved on to the other side of the city with some other dude who, according to Joe, had her out selling her ass for drugs like for on the street. Joe's son's mother and the dude she was staying with eventually got locked up for selling drugs and with that arrest, the state took Joe's son from that environment because the couple also faced child neglect and child abuse charges. So when Joe got out of jail, he went straight on a mission and he did manage to land a job, like I said, as a forklift driver at the, the pallet company. And because he was homeless, he convinced the owner to let him live in the trailer that was on the property in exchange for him looking after the place and making sure that the grounds were kept up and nobody was going to trespass or nothing like that in the area. Now, still looking for his son or his son's mother, after those prior murder charges were dismissed against Joe and he got out of jail, he picked up right where he left off. Joe found 39-year-old Kathy Magaziner when Kathy couldn't give up any information about where his son's mother was, Joe decided to take her life and strangled her to death, wrapped her body in a red tarp, and buried her body in a shallow grave on the same site where he worked at. Kathy's body stayed there for more than two years before anybody even knew what happened to her. Joel later told the detectives that even though Kathy was a corpse, six months after he killed her, he dug up her skeleton, chopped her head off, put her head in a box, washed out the maggots, and made love to her head. Yeah, y'all heard me right. And they call me crazy. Anyway, Joel then came across 22-year-old Tony Lynn Ingrassi, and after meeting her, Joe stabbed and strangled her to death for the same reason. She didn't or couldn't provide any information for Joe's son's mother. Tony's body was found near Interstate 95. Joe then met 23-year-old Kimberly Lynn Spicer at the Borderline Bar and Restaurant in Arbutus in November of 1996. Kimberly was later found stabbed to death on December the 15th. 1996. Kim had just gotten into an argument at her mother's house about her drug use, about her drug addiction. She had just witnessed her aunt overdose and her mother really lectured her about, you know, getting her life together. And after a fierce argument about this, Kim had stormed out of her home and right into the clutches of a serial killer. For all three of the women that he killed, Joe cut up pieces of their flesh dismembered them, stored and saved the biggest and meatiest pieces in Tupperware containers and kept them in his freezer like he was a freaking modern day Jeffrey Dahmer or somebody. What Joe couldn't fit in his freezer, he buried the remaining parts in a lot by his job. Now, at the same time that all of this killing was going on, Joe still worked at the pallet company. He still lived on site and the owner of the company let Joe run and operate a little pit beef or like a barbecue stand at the pallet company. And 
people that live in Baltimore or Maryland, barbecue is kind of like big here, and it's like you can find like a pick beef stain. I won't say almost on every corner, but it's common to see them, especially during the summertime. So either way, the owner must have liked Joe. He let him run like this little pit beef stand on the property. And he was allowed to cook and serve food to other employees and customers, basically anybody walking down the street who wanted food or something to eat that day. Now, according to Joe, he occasionally mixed some of the frozen body parts of at least two of the women that he had killed into the mixture of ground beef or ground pork and served this whole concoction to customers that would buy his patties or whatever the fuck he would put on his grill. Joe said that he never got any complaints. As a matter of fact, he said he got a lot of compliments. In his own words, Joe, Joe later wrote, the human body tastes very similar to pork. If you mix it together, no one can tell the difference. Whew, man, I'm telling you, a freaking walking, talking nightmare of a monster. Anyway, Lord, on December the 18th, 1996, Joe kidnapped a 37-year-old female who he used to be friends with. When Joe suddenly demanded sex from the woman, after they had both been sitting and sitting around, you know, getting high and getting drunk together, the woman refused, and that brought out the beast in Joe. After they got high together, Joe demanded sex, she refused, and she tried to leave his trailer. Now, this woman did manage to run out a few feet, but can you imagine Joe chased her, beat her, and drug her back inside this little tiny house of horrors? That woman fought for her life, you hear me? She fought with a 450-pound, 6-foot-1 serial killer and got out of his trailer by kicking out a window and escaping. The woman took off running after she got out of Joe's trailer, and when she did, she was able to run and get help. Joe later wrote in his own words, I turned around for a split second, and she scaled an 8-foot chain-length fence with barbed wire on top and jumped the fence. After that, after the woman managed to get away, she flagged down a dude in a pickup truck who then took her to a gas station where she was able to report what happened to the police. The woman told the police that she and Joel used to be friends, but now he had pulled her pants down and tried to rape her, saying, I'm going to kill you and bury you in the woods with the other girls. This woman said that Joel was a man that you could just see the evil in him. And she was scared she was going to sure, for sure die that night. Whatever Tiny wanted to do that night, he was going to do, she later told reporters for the Baltimore Sun. After the woman got away and led the police back to Joe's trailer, Joe was gone and nowhere to be found. He had panicked and he went to a friend and he actually asked the friend to help him bury a body that he had buried at his job a month earlier. The friend couldn't believe what he was hearing and reported what Joe had asked him to do to the police. This time, on December the 15th, 1996, when the police went to Joe's trailer, he was arrested and charged with murder. When questioned by the detectives, Joe immediately started confessing to them about all the bodies and where he had buried them. In total, Joe confessed to killing 13 people, including the two murders that he had previously been acquitted for. In handcuffs, Joe led the detectives to where he had buried Kimberly's remains 
and also the shallow grave where he had buried Kathy's decomposing remains. Kathy had already be, been decapitated and much of her face and skull was missing, but she was still able to be identified through dental records. With both bodies being found on the job site, at first the detectives thought that the owner of the pallet company was in on the murders too with Joe because the bodies were buried and scattered all throughout his property and they were just like, you know, it's, it's just something just not right. So they locked him up too and charged him with being an accessory to murder and tampering with evidence. But after they investigated further, eventually those charges was dropped when it became clear that Joe clearly acted alone. Joe confessed to detectives that he chose young white prostitutes who had drug addictions to heroin or cocaine because they were easy prey. He thought that they were vulnerable and he thought that nobody would care. Like nobody would miss them and nobody would even notice that they were gone anyway. Joe pled guilty to everything, all charges, and even though Joe's attorney said that Joe was full of remorse and that drugs and alcohol had basically altered Joe's personality and made him violent, at Joe's sentencing hearing, Joe confessed that he killed because he enjoyed it. He got a rush out of it, a high out of it. Joe admitted that he was a very sick person who needed help. He actually said, the words, I'm sorry, will never come out of me, for they will be a lie. I am more than willing to give up my life for what I have done to have God judge me and send me to hell for eternity. I just enjoyed it. Those were his words that he said his own sentencing hearing. Joe was convicted of kidnapping and attempted rape for the woman who escaped from him, and he received a 50-year sentence for that case. As for killing Kimberly Spicer, in 1998, Joe received a death sentence. In August of 1998, Joe pled guilty to killing Kathy also, and the prosecutors, they wanted another death sentence for this case too, but instead, Joe received a sentence of life without the possibility for parole. Now, Joe sat on death row for three years before his death sentence was overturned in the year of 2000, and Joe got another life sentence without the possibility for parole. In Joe's own words, while serving his life sentence years later, he wrote a confession to Serial Killer Central that said in chilling detail, and these are his words now, I have no problem with being locked up for no one put me, no one put me here but myself, and I deserve to be right where I'm at. The only thing I feel bad about in any of this is that I didn't get to the two motherfuckers I was really after. And that's my ex-old lady and the bastard she got hooked up with. My murder rampage started out as revenge, but ended up as a passion for the taste of blood and overwhelming sense of power one gets for taking the life of another. Now, Joe ended his blunt and raw confession with a grotesque statement that said, So the next time you're riding down the street, and you happen to see an open pit beef stand that you'd never seen before, make sure you think about this story before you take a body to a sandwich. Yikes! 
Ugh. Anyway, on August the 5th, 2017, Joe got his death wish for his one-way ticket to hell. And around 3 p.m., the now 64-year-old was found dead in his cell at the Western Correctional Institution in Cumberland, Maryland. He had died from, quote-unquote, natural causes. Now, come on now. This case was notorious in Maryland because, come on now, he was a serial killer who went around eating people. No, he was not like a Jeffrey Dahmer, but at the same time, do I believe he did that? Who knows? I remember when this happened, and I think the reason why Matheny didn't get a lot of notoriety for um, this um, case, or I guess his crimes, is because he, I mean... He didn't have, it's not like he, you know, he had bodies all over his house and stuff like that. Um, he chose, and plus to the victims, he chose. He chose, you know, white prostitutes. I'm not saying that their lives don't matter, but um, they're vulnerable victims. You know, um, they, at some point, sometimes, you know, for serial killers, they make easy prey. And um, that does not get a lot of notoriety. Now, if these were like kids or something like that, you know, that'd be a different story. But at the same time, you know, that's the reason why I think a lot of people don't know about Matheny is because of his choice of victims. And plus, you know, it wasn't like a string of victims. They were under 10. I mean, I wrote to him before. I really did. <laughs> when I was writing um, the book, uh, Maryland's Most Notorious Murders, 1990-2008, and he wrote back. He really was... a seemed like a charming person you know he was chilling on um death row i believe that's um but um even um correctional officer said he was you know a model inmate um they gave him he gave him no problems they said he was funny um he kept everybody entertained um he didn't care about living or dying basically um he didn't really try to fight his uh you know, when he was on death row, he wasn't really trying to, like, fight that sentence. Um, but he had a screwed-up childhood. And I believe that's what made him to be the person that he was. Um, either way, um, I do believe he got his one-way ticket to hell, like I said. Because he, if he did cut up bodies and serve them to the, you know, the public as, like, hamburgers or whatever, that's sick. That's sick. So, I mean, that's the reason why this case and this particular murderer was notorious in the state of Maryland. And why he made this list for one of the... Why I had to end it with this this season five with one of the sickest, most twisted sex offenders, rape, whatever you want to call it, murderers that the state of Maryland has ever seen. Moving right into this week's Unsolved Homicide. But before I do, let me just tell y'all, let me just mention that like in each season, each season before this one, ever since the premiere of this podcast, there will always, always, no matter what, always be an unsolved homicide that needs attention that will be discussed and profiled on this podcast. Believe it or not, not every single person that gets killed in the state of Maryland, their case does not always make the news channels like Fox 45, 
don't always make, you know, WBAL, Murder, Inc., or any type of media attention or nothing at all, you know, nothing like that. These cases, they don't get the attention that they deserve for whatever reason. It's, it's like some reason they don't, it's, it doesn't seem like they were getting investigated. It seems like a person or a victim, they was killed, and then that's it. It's like they was here one minute, and then they was gone the next. You hear a little bit about it, and you don't hear nothing, nothing else about it. And then the victim's family is just expected to just pick up where they left off, pick up the pieces, move on with their life like nothing nothing ever happened. And basically, just hope for the best. Just hope that their case will be solved. Just hope that the detectives will take a look at it, you know, and just hope, keep their fingers crossed that something was going to get done. I mean, guess what? On this podcast... I, I try to give attention to not only notable high-profile homicide cases like we do in the first part of each segment or each episode, but a focus is also on unsolved homicides that may or may not have received the attention, the dignity, or the respect that they deserved, or you know the the focus or unsolved homicides where it seemed like nothing was done because that victim lived a certain type of lifestyle or, you know, they was tricking, they was selling drugs or whatever. Whatever, it doesn't matter whatever they did in their lifestyle. The family still deserves to know what happened and why. The family still deserves justice. You know, the last I checked, I don't think nobody's name is God right now. And so what gives you the right to judge another person who, who named... What made you judge and jury about who gets to decide who lives and dies based off of their lifestyle? So, the the I, I just believe that every victim deserves justice and the family deserves answers no matter what. So, with that being said, this episode's unsolved homicide is the shooting murder of 31-year-old Deontay Eugene Julius. On December the 20th, 2015 Deontay Eugene Julius like during the middle of the day someone walked up to 31 year old Deontay Eugene Julius in the 3700 block of Ravenwood Avenue in northeast Baltimore and shot him in the chest and yeah you it's hard to believe you know for people that's not in Baltimore like how this can happen you could be minding your business, minding your business, walking down the street and end up a victim of homicide for no reason, for no reason. And that's what happened to this young man. Deontay died a few yards from his grandmother's house on the front lawn. Witnesses said that there was no argument, no fight, no exchange of words, no sign of a robbery, no art, nothing. Yeah, I mean, it can be like that in Baltimore sometimes. You would have to actually live it to believe it. But Deontay had a two-year-old daughter who was his absolute world. The oldest of two brothers, Deontay's sudden murder crushed his family. His mother said that Deontay was big on family, and he went from the last time she talked to him, they had been putting up Christmas decorations and they had just taken a break to go get something to eat. Now, a few days later, her son was dead. Deontay's mother released a comment to the Baltimore son that said, 
He was a low-key, lovable person. He was a good father. He loved his daughter. I wouldn't wish this on anybody. It's like a hole in your heart when you wake up and grab the phone to call your child, but you realize he's not here. So you can't talk to him. It hurts. When you look at his daughter, you see him. It hurts. Deontay was the type of person that he would do anything for anybody. So many people used to ask him for rides and stuff and he would do it. And once he got older, he had his first child, his first and only child. He started just wanting to be close to home. Described as a people person with an infectious smile who was on a mission to follow in his grandfather's footsteps of driving big rigs for a living. Baltimore City detectives agreed that Deontay's shooting was completely random and although there is a $2,000 reward for any information that can lead to an arrest or conviction in his murder, there haven't been any clues, any updates, no new leads. And the detectives need all of the help that they can get. And guess what? They definitely can't do it by themselves. They just can't because they kept too busy, to be honest. So if you know of any information or clues that can lead to an arrest or conviction in this unsolved homicide, please call Baltimore City Detectives at 410-396-2100. You can also call them at 1-866-7-LOCKUP. You can send them a text message at 443-902-4824. You can email them at homicidetips at baltimorepolice.org. Once again, those numbers are Baltimore City Cold Case Detectives, 410 396 2100. You can call them at 1 7 Lockup. You can also message, text message them at 443 902 4824. And you can email them at homicide tips, and that's tips with an S, at baltimorepolice.org. You can remain anonymous, people. Thank you for tuning in this week. Please be sure to subscribe to this podcast for updates on future spine-tingling, hair-raising, eye-popping episodes. And also for paid subscribers, be sure to check out the real, the raw, and the unedited version of why I do what I do. How and why I got into true crime. I mean, a lot of people think I just woke up one day and decided to just start writing about and talking about killers and blood and gore and murders and whatnot, but that is hardly the case. That's not even true. There is a full-blown method to all of this, and this was definitely like no overnight gimmick or just no I just some overnight idea. Also, be sure to check out the new website, www.maryland's most notorious murders.com and Merlin is spelled with MDS so it's www.mdsmostnotoriousmurders.com also be sure to check out um, the website which you know gives you access to all of the episodes that have been released 
up to date from season one through season five. You can also hit the website for links to all of the books that are related to this podcast entitled um, Maryland's Most Notorious Murders, 1990 through 2008, Maryland's Unsolved Homicides, Volume 1, um, also Until I Get Caught, which is um, Until I Get Caught, True Story of a Serial Rapist in Baltimore, which is a book that every woman should read. Also, you can also check out my local bestsellers, uh, Junkie, A True Baltimore Story, and Child of Baltimore. Be sure to tune in next week where another high profile, another set of murderers, a whole new topic will be profiled and the next episode will be the season premiere of season six where a whole new set of bizarre, heinous, high profile cases in Maryland will be profiled, they will be examined, and they will be discussed on Maryland's Most Notorious Murders. This has been a Savage Life production.